All right, so we're just going to uh, real briefly walk through this. I decided to start a new series, kind of segued last time. We were talking about the Psalms and had that uh, eruption, if you guys remember. That was fun. Um, and it kind of led to what I had already wanted to talk about anyways, which was the relationship between Christians and the Old Testament scriptures. So this study, I'm going to go through the Gospels, knock that out today, then we'll go through Paul's epistles, and then we'll go through what are called the Catholic or the universal epistles, not written to any particular church, and then we'll do some final conclusions and applications. So I think you guys will enjoy this study. I'm enjoying studying for it, so hopefully it'll be mutually enjoyable. All right, first line of the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, says the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What is that telling you? Start back there. That's what it's telling you. It's saying that here's the first fundamental thought about Christ, is that he is connected with the history that God has delivered in Genesis about Abraham and in the books of Samuel and beyond about David and his throne and his kingdom, book of Psalms. So it's telling you this Messiah, this Christ, this Jesus is born of these two great men that God chose and made covenants with in times past in the Old Testament. And then Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23. This is another theme throughout the Gospels. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And this is throughout the book of Matthew. He's constantly saying that it may be fulfilled. Well, what? The Old Testament. He'll quote from Moses. He'll quote from the Psalms. He'll quote from Isaiah. He'll quote from Jeremiah. Again and again and again. Constantly saturated with the Old Testament. So this is the record of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's record takes you back to the Old Testament. So we see the fulfillment of, of the Old Testament scriptures. We see the authority and the nature. Notice what he says there. He says that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of who? Isaiah? No. God. So the nature of the Bible itself is that it's God speaking by means of prophets and apostles. That's the, what we call the doctrine of inspiration. Better it would be that it's the doctrine of God-breathed scripture. The Bible is breathed out by God. It's as if you're listening to a voice. Somebody told me once he had an audible. I said, yeah, I have that all the time because we read the Bible in family worship. I have an audible of God speaking to me. Every time I read the Bible, I'm hearing God's voice. So that's what he's saying. God spoke this by the prophet. So he's telling us how we ought to think about the scriptures of the Old Testament. It's God speaking. Matthew 4, and when the tempter came to him, that is our Lord, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, this is, this is kind of a, a very powerful literary device our Lord uses. First, he says it's written. Then what he says is written is that you ought to live based off of scripture, all of scripture, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. But you see, he's using the scripture to prove that you should only use the scripture. That's a very powerful device. 
It's like eponymous, they call that, where it's a name on top of a name. Like hachu is a name that sounds like a sneeze, and it's describing the thing. So here he's saying, it is written, you shall live by what is written. You see that? That's a very powerful device. Now, every time in the Gospels or the New Testament where you read the words, it is written, it's in what's called the perfect tense. That is where an action is completed in time past, and it continues in its effect to the present, and then on into the future. So every time the word, it is written, appears, God, by his Holy Spirit, spoke through the prophet, had him write it down at a time in the past, it continues in its authority to this day, and its authority will continue on indefinitely into the future. So every time you read, it is written, that's what they're saying. And parallel phrases are, thus saith the Lord, it is written, God said, the Lord spoke. So all those are parallel phrases in the New Testament about the Old Testament. It's God speaking. It's God's voice. It's written down. It has full authority. And not only so, but Jesus says that our life is not to be an animal existence of bread alone, but it's to consist of every word, not the words that we like, not the words that appeal to us, not the words that the world says are acceptable to speak or that our own feelings say amen to, but every word that's proceeded out of the mouth of God, that's what we're supposed to live on. So this is giving us a Christian doctrine of the Old Testament. That is our life, in other words. The book that God gave through the prophets, that is our life. Matthew chapter 4, just to kind of give you a picture here, Again, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. The Old Testament God demanded exclusive worship, no divided loyalties. Is that a different God in the New Testament? No. That's what Jesus is saying. The same thing that God said to Israel, only worship the Lord. Jesus says the same thing applied to him and to all men. All of his disciples are required to believe the same thing drawn right out of the law of Moses. That's authoritative for us. Okay, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Uh, This is a very critical passage because it comes at the beginning of a series of discourses that Christ makes that many people think, well, that contradicts the Old Testament. Here he says, love your enemies, not hate your enemies. Here he says, bless those who curse you, not call down fire on them. And they say, well, see, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not the same. They contradict each other. Okay, God changed his mind. He used to be meany, vindictive. He was grumpy. Now he's peace-loving granola. He's LGBTQ friendly, and he's got the rainbow fish. No, that's not right. So here, our Lord says, at the beginning of the discourse, so that you don't mistake his meaning when he goes on, he says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so... He's about to tell you things. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall uh, love, your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And 
you have heard that this is said and that is said and the other thing is said. And you're going to read that and you're going to say, well, didn't it actually say that? But what he's doing is he's correcting people's misinterpretations, misapplications, taking the scriptures of the Old Testament and turning them to an intention God did not have. That's what he's doing. Some of it is traditions of the elders handed down by oral tradition. And some of it is where the elders had taken the scriptures and twisted them from their original meaning. Moses actually tells you to love your enemies. That's actually a Bible doctrine in the law of Moses. In fact, Moses said that if you see your enemy and he's got his animal on the side of the road, he's broken down and his animal has a weight that's crushed it, go help him. That's what he says. Love your enemy. Go and do good to those who persecute you. You see this in David also. He's a perfect example, loving your enemies. The Bible teaches from the beginning to the end what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. But people think that he's somehow contradicting the Old Testament, so he gives this preface. Wake up. I'm not contradicting the Old Testament. I'm teaching the same thing, but you're going to think I am. And that's why he's disabusing them right at the beginning. He's giving them a set of glasses. No, the very least commandment you think is, is nothing, is the smallest thing. He says, no, I came to teach you to do those things, and you ought to teach others to do them likewise. So this is a good paradigm for reading and understanding the Old Testament. Okay, the centurion, just briefly mention this. Jesus says that this great faith of the centurion who says, you don't even have to come in my house to say the word and my servant will be healed, that centurion has greater faith. But notice what he says at the end. Many shall come from the east and the west, these are the Gentiles, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that you're part of the family. That's what that means. You Gentiles cut off from the life of God through the ignorance that's in you by nature, through the hardening of your heart. I'm going to engraft you so far into the covenant with Abraham that you'll be sitting at the family table eating. You'll be part of the covenant. You'll be part of that promise I made to Abraham. That promise is coming to you. Paul says the same thing we'll see in Galatians. But our Lord teaches that same doctrine as well. Matthew chapter 12. Oh, but you see there are nine commandments for Christians. There are not ten commandments. That's for the Jews, right? We have nine commandments that were delivered to us as Christians. Nope, sorry. Matthew 12, 5 through 8. Or have you not read in the law... How that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Now it's interesting, people say, well, the Sabbath is never repeated in the New Testament. Oh, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, Jesus in several different places points out that the Sabbath is part of the law that obliges us. Now, he shows that the Pharisaical doctrine of the Sabbath is not the same as the Mosaic doctrine. In other words, what's taught in the scripture about the fourth commandment and the Sabbath day is not identical with the Pharisaical representation. They're different. So different that he can say that their doctrine of the Sabbath makes man a slave to the Sabbath, as if the creation of man had the Sabbath in mind rather than in God's mercy the creation of the Sabbath had man in mind. He says that the Sabbath was made for man. Now, that's not saying the Sabbath was made for the Jews. That's not true, that the Sabbath was made for the Jews. 
The Sabbath was made for man. And here, again and again, you see this. Jesus always has these disputes with the Pharisees to clear up for them their misunderstanding of the Sabbath. Not to say the Sabbath doesn't apply. In fact, when he tells his disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem, he tells them to pray that their flight would not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Now, we don't observe a Jewish Sabbath, and we could talk about why we don't observe the last day. Think about it this way. Are, are, are you given rest because of your works proceeding? Or are you given rest and then your works follow your rest? That's the difference between a Jewish Sabbath and a Christian Sabbath. Christians receive justification by faith alone in Christ alone. We have our rest first, the first day of the week, right? That's when Christ rose from the dead. Then when do we do our works? After we've been justified, after you're saved by grace. The Jewish Sabbath reflects the natural order that God gave to Adam, which is you do all your works, Adam, and at the end of your works, I will give you your rest. It's by works that you're justified in the covenant God made with Adam. So when he instituted the original Sabbath, he, he showed the people that to sound in their ears that you cannot be justified by the works of the law. That's what we find out at the beginning of the publication of the law in, in Exodus 20 is God's your redeemer who brings you up out of bondage. That's why you obey his commandments. But until the resurrection of Christ, God left that reminder that the sins had not been atoned for in their observance of the Sabbath. So they had it on the last day of the week. We have it on the first day of the week because that's when our life arose. Christ, who is our Sabbath, rose from the dead and he instituted the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, which our ancestors have observed. In fact, I think until 1980s, Virginia had blue laws, yeah, which is the Christian Sabbath. Christian civilization is founded on an observance of the Lord's Day. Once you get rid of the Lord's Day, Christian Sabbath, gone. Christian society, gone. So it's very important. So Jesus said his disciples would observe the Sabbath after his resurrection, and that they were to pray that when they fled from Jerusalem, that it would not be on the Lord's Day, because the Lord's Day is for rest. It's not for fleeing from your persecutors. It's not for your city being burned down. You don't want to have war on the Sabbath. In any case, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's not the abrogator who gets rid of it. He's the one who comes to fulfill the law, not to abrogate it. All right, Matthew 15, verses 4 through 9. Jesus again confronting the Pharisees. For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now this is an interesting passage. If you got uh, a lot of money, and you had old parents, you could say, I'm going to devote all my assets to the temple. And once my parents die, the temple would give me back my money or my assets, or whatever they were. And then I didn't have to take care of my parents because I dedicated my living to the temple, 
And the temple would take a little fee. They'd take a little cut out of that money before they gave it back to you. So you kind of paid a fee to not look after your parents. That's what he's talking about. In Mark, he talks about it as Korban, Mark 7. They, they devoted these assets to the holy worship of God, supposedly, so that they didn't have to look after mom and dad. And this is what he's talking about here. Your commandments and doctrines are not taught by the scriptures. What do the scriptures teach? Honor thy father and thy mother. And guess what else? This is the one thing people have trouble with about the Old Testament law. Well, didn't they used to stone their kids who were incorrigible? Uh, Yeah. He quotes it, actually. He says, anyone who curses his father or his mother, let him die the death. That's the law of Moses concerning the punishment, not of little tiny children, but of those who have grown to a maturity of understanding. You don't punish little kids as if they were adults. That's forbidden by God's law as well. But if you have someone who curses as they did by their action, what does Jesus say is the appropriate penalty for the cursing of your father or your mother? Dying, right? Civil order must be instituted. And in fact, it's interesting here, He says that they've made the commandment of God of none effect. What commandment is he talking about? He's talking about the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. And what else? He that curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He's tying those together as one commandment. Because, and this is important to understand. If you ever get a chance to read the Puritans who founded this country, they understood this kind of stuff. What it is is, God gave Israel a, a moral law, that we call that the Ten Commandments, and then he gave them these forensic or judicial laws. And when those forensic or judicial laws line up with the Ten Commandments, they still apply to us right now, right here, in this nation, in this Commonwealth of Virginia, in our local areas. So if God says something about no other gods no graven images, taking his name in vain, keeping the Sabbath, honoring your father and your mother, not killing, not committing adultery, you know, all stealing, whatever it is, false witness. If he says something and then he says, and by the way, here's how you're supposed to punish that. Is there any other law that could be as righteous as that? No. Now, if he tells you don't eat this kind of food, don't eat that kind of food, don't mix your garments, is there anything in that that reflects the Ten Commandments? Well, not really. It's God has a sovereign will, and he can impose it on people as he chooses. He could tell us, stand on your head in the corner, and you'd have to do it because it's right, because he said it. But does that reflect the moral law for you to stand on your head? No. But if he tells you, stand on your head, you better do it because, you know, you have to honor God. Now, he hasn't told us to do that. But for Israel, he told them lots of things like that. Don't eat this. Don't touch this. Follow this ceremony, offer this offering, move here, move there, do this, do that. Lots of things that aren't reflective of the Ten Commandments per se, but this is not one of them. When he says, you curse your father and your mother, you die, that's a real serious judicial law that he's saying applies from the Old Testament. And that's how we get civil order, is when we recognize God has an order that he's imposed on mankind in the Ten Commandments. And also he's added these righteous statutes that help us to understand how to govern a society. And this is what Jesus is teaching. It's one commandment. All right. Luke chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just point out a couple of things here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah, it, usually what people are afraid of is, well, that would be like a bloodbath. And that's true if you believe in like ex post facto law. What, we don't believe in that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the law gets published first. Everybody has an opportunity to be instructed in it. And then it gets enforced. Not before then. So if, if you have people who are like, whoa, dude, you're going like to kill everybody? No. You're going to instruct everyone so that they have an opportunity to understand. And then once people have been instructed, which is the job of the church, but guess who doesn't teach on these laws? The church. So how is anybody ever going to understand? They're not. And, and that's part of why, you're right, that's part of why we have so much chaos. If, if you say that it's not a propaganda campaign that's produced the number of transgender children, you're lying, right? It's definitely a propaganda campaign. They were out there pushing it. What if anybody who pushed unnatural vices was put to death? How much of that do you think would happen in our culture and society? No, it wouldn't. They'd get pushed back into the closet, right? Because they would be afraid that there's teeth, that if I push unnatural vices, there will be real-world application to me real quick. I'm not going to get to get off and say free speech. No, I'm going to have to deal with God and the civil magistrate who is his representative because that's how God thinks of the civil government. They're like his lieutenants. He's leaving them in charge, and they better do what the master says. And if they don't, then you get chaos, you get violence, you get all the disorders. So the, the intention of the law is like a, it's a silent magistrate, is how one man described it. It's, the law is there, and it teaches you the, the truth. And then the civil government, the goal of it is to be like a speaking law to instruct the people in the law and by practical punishments to say, this is evil. You cannot violate the order of nature and pretend that you have freedom to do so because the order of nature is what makes us human. And the gospel restores nature. The gospel does not abrogate nature. The, grace, the, phrase is, the theological phrase is, grace perfects nature, grace does not destroy nature. And once we get, grasp that concept, that's what he's saying here. The fifth commandment and the judicial sanction are a perfection of the, the natural law. When we violate it, we bring curses on ourselves. And when we allow it as a society, we're asking God, please destroy our civilization. It's like praying, God, please destroy us. We don't care about you. We don't want to listen to you. And we don't want to live like humans. We want to live like animals. And guess what? You get treated like an animal when you live like an animal. All right, so... Back here to uh, Zacharias. One of the things you see, a constant theme, is that the church is the true Israel. So he talks about, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. That's us, by the way. That's Christians. Jews and Gentiles in one body. We are his people. He hath raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Again, pointing us back. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. That includes Moses. That includes David, Isaiah. So in any case, our salvation is the same as what was prophesied by the prophets. That's the point here. That, that book is our book. It doesn't belong to the guys with the you know, little curly locks and the black hats. That's not their book. That's our book. 
because it talks to us about Jesus Christ. All right, Luke 24, 25 through 27. This is on the road to Emmaus. Jesus says wonderful, warm, and fuzzy words like this. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's our book. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. If we don't think it's our book, what does he call us? He calls us fools. That's kind of hard. I and mean, that's what we are, right? We're slow of heart to believe everything that God has spoken. And we don't think that that book is for us. We think it's for them. And some people specialize in teaching that that book's not for you. That book's for them. Jesus specialized in teaching the opposite. That is about me. That is about my sufferings, starting at Moses and in all the prophets. You're going to find out about my glory, my resurrection, my sufferings. These are the things you ought to believe from the Old Testament. That's, that's the point here. It's our book. It's a Christian book. Okay, John 1, verses 16 and 17. And of his fullness have we all received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Okay, you can have a type in the law of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about it in chapter 3. And we'll look at it. You lift up the serpent on the pole in the book of Numbers. And just as they looked to the serpent and were healed, so you'll look to the Son of Man when he's lifted up so that whoever believes in him will be saved. But when you think about what is the difference between Moses and Christ, yes, that's our book. But that book does not have the substance. It has the shadows. Especially when we're talking about the revelation of salvation, the redemption out of Egypt is not going to get anybody into heaven. But what it points us to, the redemption we have in Christ, that gets us into heaven. So the serpent did not take anybody all the way to glory and the forgiveness of sins when they looked to that serpent up on the pole, but it represented Christ who would be lifted up from the earth to whom we look unto salvation. So the law has a shadow and a type of the good things. Christ is the substance. So the grace and the truth comes by Jesus Christ. So there is, you might say, an inferiority in the Old Testament. We don't deny that at all. John 3, verses 9 and 10, and then 14 and 15. This is when Jesus discusses being born of above or born again. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? In other words... You, Nicodemus, are a teacher of the Old Testament. You're supposed to instruct all Israel in what it says. And you don't understand what I'm talking about. And what he's talking about is regeneration. You must be born of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Does the Old Testament teach that? Yes, most certainly it does. And he should have known that. Nicodemus should have known that. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So there's the the type of the law. God said, you're bit by a snake. Why were they bit by a snake? Anybody remember the fiery serpents? Murmuring Murmuring, sinning against God. 
violating his commandments and complaining against God, taking his name in vain. And God punishes them for their sin by sending these serpents. The serpents begin to kill people as they bite them. The venom strikes quickly and these people are dropping dead. I think it was, what, 40,000 people died in that plague. God said, Moses, I'm going to teach you about Christ. You're going to make a snake, just like the ones biting everybody. You're going to lift it up on a pole and everybody who looks to that will live. What are the wages of sin? Death. What is the free gift of God? By Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is showing them, just as you're dying from this snake bite because of your sin, so you deserve to die because of your breaking of my law. But I sent my son so that whoever looks to him may live and have eternal life. And so again, the Old Testament may contain law rather than the substance of, of the truth of the gospel. But nevertheless, if you read the Old Testament, you will see Christ on every page, he says. Beginning from Moses and all the prophets, he taught them everything about himself. Okay, and then just one final thing from the Gospel of John. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. This is Jesus' doctrine of the Old Testament. The scriptures cannot be broken. If they say something, it is infallibly true. You live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And you cannot twist it, break it, or turn it into something else. You must receive it. It is the law that God gave to you. What's interesting there, just as a sidelight, it's not actually written in the law of Moses what he quotes there. It's written in the Psalms. But this is a common device that the uh, author's of the Holy Scriptures use, it's where they'll refer to something by its most honorable part. So he's talking about the Old Testament. The law is the most honorable part. In fact, all the prophets, what do they do about the law? They point you back to it. Remember, at the end of the Old Testament, remember the law of my servant Moses, lest I smite the earth with a curse. That's the end of the book of Malachi. He's pointing you all the way back to the beginning. And the prophets are constantly doing that. Just like the New Testament. Where are they pointing you to? Oh, you should read the epistles of Paul. You ought to read Revelation. Nope. They're pointing you back to Deuteronomy, to the Psalms. This is what Jesus is doing. Isaiah, they're quoting from the Old Testament. They're applying it to their circumstances. They're showing how it's a Christian book. Just as Paul in the book of Acts. Just read the book of Acts. Every time he goes into the synagogue, what does he do? Opens up the Old Testament. Explains the text to the people. And then he makes doctrinal allegations and applications that Jesus is the Messiah, that he fulfills all these prophecies, and that it behooved him to suffer and to rise again, and that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All that he gets from where? From the Old Testament. So the scriptures cannot be broken. They are our book. The law, though the most honorable portion, this is actually quoting the Psalms, but because it's one word of God, both Old and New Testament, you can quote one part of it. I could tell you, uh, if I were saying in the same figure of speech, it is written, the, it is written in the Gospels, um, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Because the most honorable part of the book is the Gospels, where it tells us the substance of Jesus Christ and his work, but it represents the whole book. That's a similar figure of speech, where the scriptures as a whole are referred to as law, even when quoting from the Psalms in this instance. All right, any questions 